Good morning, West Park. Merry Christmas. You made it through the fog. Well done. Well done. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. As we now uh, open your word, would you uh, speak to us in ways that are very personal? Uh, Would you be ever-present here amongst us? And would you uh, lead us into that truth which you have for each of us this day? As we come and we reflect and celebrate our hearts full of adoration for the King who has come. And Father, we just thank you for that. Help your servant this morning uh, clarify my thoughts and anoint my lips. And may my offering to you be pleasing to you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow's Christmas. Uh, yeah, so you're like, yeah, right? Yeah, I get it. I kind of get it, yeah. You know, I, I like to ask people as we approach to Christmas, for years I've done this, I say, well, what, 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 what do you like to experience at Christmas? And you get all kinds of things, you know, uh, you know I like the eating, uh, I like getting together with family, I like, uh, uh, you know, uh, gift giving, I like gift receiving, uh, all of those things. And as I've thought over the last couple of weeks about what I would uh, speak on this morning with it, Christmas Sunday, uh, I went back to the text, and, uh, and so this is gonna be a little different message maybe than you've heard at Christmas. And if you've been in church for a long time, I've preached a lot of Christmas messages. And you start to get to the point where, okay, what am I gonna preach on Christmas this year? I guess I'll preach Christmas from the donkey's viewpoint, right? Because you, you, know, you start running out of ideas, and what, and you're kind of scrambling a little bit. Uh, but here's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning. My, the title is what we have just lifted our voices as a song, Come Let Us Adore Him. And as I look back over the story of Christmas and even the preamble to the story of Christmas, I reflected on the fact that many of the things that we like and we are engaged in at Christmas, which is wonderful and perfectly fine, uh, are not the central experience of what most people had at that first Christmas. Everybody involved in this first Christmas, it appears, had a central experience, a very unique experience. Uh, If we go to the preamble leading up to Christmas, we think of Elizabeth and Zachariah. Elizabeth is, of course, Mary's cousin. She is married to Zachariah, who is a priest. And an angel comes, angel Gabriel comes to Elizabeth and says, you know, you're going to be a mother, and you're going to have a baby boy, and you're gonna name that boy John. And the angel also comes to Zachariah, and he's told that he will be unable to speak. So Elizabeth's husband will not be able to speak for a period of time, and most of you wives go, well, that's a wonderful Christmas gift. Uh, My wife would say that. Uh, And then, of course, uh, all of that comes to pass, as we well know. And uh, then also Mary becomes pregnant, and she goes to uh, visit Elizabeth. And when Mary uh, arrives at Elizabeth's home, Elizabeth uh, hears Mary's greeting, and we know the text that says the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice she says this, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord, interesting, isn't it, should come to me? Eight days later, Elizabeth Child's born, or eight days after Elizabeth's child's born, of course, they take the child into the 
dedication ceremony and all the friends and family come like uh, the happens, the ceremony of circumcision. And, uh, and at that time, the name is officially bestowed and Elizabeth says he's going to be called John and Zechariah. He agrees even though he can't speak and his mouth is opened and Luke 1.64 records what he does, the very first thing he does when his mouth is open. Let me read it for you. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. The universal experience of this first Christmas is that people worshiped. People worshiped. Elizabeth worshiped. She bestows a words of worship to Mary. Zachariah worshiped, blessing God. And of course, we know Mary, who's just this ordinary young woman. God uses her in an extraordinary way. And the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will, uh, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And Mary, got news for you, there will be a child born to you and he will be called holy, the son of God. And then after Mary visits Elizabeth, we have this great song of praise known as the Magnificat. It's Latin. And we read about it in Luke chapter one. And what does Mary do? Mary says this. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary worships, Mary worships. Poor old Joseph, he's got a wife now that's having a baby and they're not really married and, and he knows it's not his baby. And Joseph, with the text tells us, he's an honorable guy, he's a good guy, he, he wants to kind of do the right thing so he's gonna quietly just you know, set Mary off to one side and kind of go find a new life, he must be devastated. But then of course, in a dream, an angel appears appears to Joseph, and uh, Joseph is told, you're, you're part of something here unique in all of human history. The baby's name will be Jesus, and, uh, and Joseph has a change of heart, a change of mind, and he, he immediately, the text says, he took Mary home. See, Joseph was a worshiper. Obedience is always an act of worship. If you're disobedient, don't call yourself a worshiper. Worship always has an element of obedience. Christmas, friends, is all about worship. It's all about worship. It's a Jesus-focused event. Now, it's been co-opted in our society, and it ends up looking more like our birthday instead of Jesus' birthday, or your kid's birthday, or your grandkid's birthday. But it's Jesus' birth we are celebrating, and core to that celebration is worship. Open your Bibles, if you have it there, to Matthew 2, 2. We're gonna move around to three different spots this morning. Uh, as we look at this Christmas story and this story of worship. And this will be familiar to, to many of you. Matthew chapter two is unpacking the story of the wise men. And the verse says this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. The wise men are led by way of a star, and of course this is so wonderfully God because God always steps into our unique human experience, and of course they were familiar with stars, they studied stars, they knew about star formations. God speaks into their experience and situation, and they say, we wanna know where he is because we have come to worship. We've come to worship. Now turn over to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two, verse eight, very familiar passage to you. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field watching over their flock by night. And you know, you probably know this, but in that culture, shepherds were not the elites. Shepherds were not Kardashians. 
If Willie Nelson had lived in that time, he would have wrote a song, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Shepherds. That would have been the mantra. But God reaches out to them, these nondescript shepherds looking over their sheep, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, because that's what happens when angels appear to you. Angels are not these cute little cherubims that you see, you know, in the Christian bookstore. But on a dark night in a society with only oil lamps, an angel gets your attention. And they were afraid. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all of the people. And they decide to go see the baby. They want to go worship the baby, and they go see the baby firsthand. Let me just say this. If you're here this morning, and you're, you're not a church person, you're this whole Jesus thing is kind of weird to you, and you're not sure what to make of it all, here's what I'd like to encourage you. I'd like you to do what the shepherds did. You, you figure out Jesus for yourself. You, have, you take a good look at him. Don't, don't, don't go by what somebody at work told you about Christianity or what your brother-in-law told you. You take a firsthand long look at Jesus, just like those shepherds did. And then we get this worship in fuller form in Luke, look down to verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. They worshiped. In both of these scenarios, with both the wise men and the shepherds, these two groups of people, there's two important realities I want you to notice. The first one is this. They acknowledge that a king has come. You know, I often hear that, uh, you know, Christmas, the baby Jesus in the manger, that's what we're celebrating. No, we're not, actually. We're celebrating that, but that's, and that's correct, but it's woefully incomplete. It's woefully incomplete. Christmas is not just about a baby in a manger. It is about a king who has come who's destined to be crucified. And that's certainly worthy of our worship. They acknowledge that a king has come. They acknowledge that a king has come. And then secondly, their response to that is to worship. And I'd just like to encourage you, uh, moms and dads and, and uh, grandparents, family, can I encourage you, whether it be this afternoon or tonight after the Christmas Eve services, maybe tomorrow when you're together as family, to do what shepherds and wise men did. In some regards, you've got opposite ends of the cultural continuum there, sort of the elite and the unknown, and they both did the same thing. And can I encourage you to do that? Take time to joyfully and reverently, humbly acknowledge, first and foremost, that Christmas tells us that a king has come. And then in response to that king's arrival, worship. Worship him. The natural response to a life-changing encounter with Jesus is to worship. It's the natural response. If you're here this morning and you've had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, then the natural response is to worship. Now let me give you a definition of worship. And this is a biblical de definition of worship, okay? Because people worship all kinds of things. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. So there's an outward manifestation of our worship and there's an inward reality of our worship. Outwardly, with our voices, we just did that. Inwardly, our heart has to be oriented in the right place. 
And, and, and that's biblical worship. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that people are worshiping all kinds of things, right? They're ascribing glory and worth to all kinds of things. Uh, just before COVID, I was in Chicago uh, with a friend of mine, and he said, you know what? It was in the winter. It was actually about two weeks before Christmas. He said, I'm going to try and get tickets to a Chicago Blackhawks game. I'm not a big sports fan, and he was really gung going. He said, okay. He said, I want to treat you. I said, okay. I don't know what he spent, but he got really good tickets. We were like in the fourth row. We were down there right at the front. The place was jammed. The arena was jammed, and I'm going to tell you something. You sit three rows back in a Blackhawks game, everybody around you is a zealot. They got the hats, they got the mitts, they got the coats and the, and the expensive hockey jerseys. And, and uh, they probably had Blackhawk underwear, I don't know. But man, they were revved up. And we're sitting there like, you know, we don't look like anybody else around us, a couple Canadians. And they are revved up and they are crazy cheering. And then you know what happens? A guy gets a hat trick. Now, do you know what happens when somebody gets a hat trick? Anybody here hockey? You're hockey fans. What happens when somebody gets a hat trick? What do people do? They throw their hats. So there was a couple in front of us, fairly young couple, and they were, they were matched. The jackets, the sweaters, the hats, the mitts, the whole, everything. They, and I mean, it looked like expensive gear. This wasn't the, you know, giant tiger deal. This was like, you know, the high-end hockey stuff. And uh, the hat trick, and he takes off his toque. I can say that because I'm in Canada. You know what it is. He takes off his Blackhawk hat, and he fires it out on the ice. And the wife, I think his wife or girlfriend, she goes nuts. Why would you do that? Do you know that two cup, what that cost? You just threw it out there, and now, I, now we don't match and everything. And me and my buddy, we're, we kind of get the giggles because it's kind of funny because he's just getting shellacked, and, she's, and, then, and then she's like this. And, of course, there's still quite a bit of fanfare, and, and he's standing there, and she's standing there, and I think it was from heaven. Overhead of us, landed in his chair, was the toque he just threw on the ice. Somebody threw theirs from up above. It was two weeks before Christmas. I picked it up. I said, excuse me, sir. I don't know if you believe in Christmas miracles, but here's your toque from heaven. And he says, he looks at her. He goes, yeah, see, it's a miracle. There's the thing. Shouldn't have chewed me out. Then he puts it on. And that's it, right? But they're worshiping. They are worshiping. You know, sometimes I wonder, how does the Lord feel about that? We can get so revved up, right, over a hockey game and, and, and sports, and then we can be lukewarm, lethargic in our worship. I bet if I could find that guy today, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even remember what team they were playing. But it seemed to really matter that night. Let me ask you this. Uh, what makes you cheer? Yeah! What makes you weep? Uh, if you can identify those things, it'll tell you a little bit about where your worship's focused, what you cheer over and what you weep over. Worship is the human response to the glory and grace of God. Worship is the human response to the glory and grace of God, and I would say the greatness of God too, which is the convergence, the conflation of those two realities. The shepherds and the wise men responded to this act of a gracious God and went to see this newborn savior, and they responded by worshiping because worship is both an attitude and an action. 
How you doing in your worship? That's the question this morning. How you doing? So this morning, for the few minutes I have left, I want us to focus on one aspect of worship, but for us as a church, as a faith community, it's a big aspect of our worship. It's a significant way we worship. It's our corporate worship. When we gather together through music, and you may not know this, but Christianity is the musical faith. Did you know that? No other great religion has music intrinsic into its worship experience like we do. None of them. We've got the franchise on it. And it's part of our history. It's part of the biblical text. Throughout the text of Scripture, we hear about music directed towards God. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Psalm 95. This is a great little section, just two or three verses here that I want to focus on in these next few minutes about worship. Psalm 95, verse number one. Let me read these verses for you. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Let's look at the text. Oh, starts off, oh. Oh always conveys the immensity of an experience, right? You know that, and we use that in our own language. We go, oh, what am I gonna do? Oh, I wish that happened. Oh, my goodness. It's the, the immensity, the gravity of an experience. And sometimes our inability to fully articulate is like, oh, I don't know what to say, but it's, this is big. Come is the next word. It means come together. It, it's collectively we gather together. Let us, see, let us make a joyful noise. Let us, three times we read that, or twice we read that. Three times we read it. Let us. Lift our voices. If you are one of God's people, a follower of Jesus, then you're part of this holy choir. To the Lord, he's the audience. You're not singing for the guy next to you or the the woman in front of you or whatever. The Lord is the audience. We're singing to the Lord when we lift our voices on Sunday morning. I hope he likes my singing voice better than anybody around me does. And it's a joyful noise. It's where we're raising the war cry. We're giving it our, and then and look at, to, to the Lord, there's a descriptor there, the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. And see, we have a benefit that the writer of the psalm didn't. We're gathered here on Christmas Eve, and we look back at the first Christmas, and we say, oh yeah, baby born in a manger. But then we can ratchet the clock forward, and we say, not just a baby born in a manger, but a king destined for a cross, a king who, was, who lived a godly, sinless life, and then ultimately is crucified and dies, and then there's a glorious resurrection We know what he has done for us, how he's rescued us, and how he has indwelt us and is journeying with us. And we can say yes today that he is the rock of my salvation, and I stand firmly and confidently, and I can pour out my praises in song to him because he's all-powerful and all-good and infinitely trustworthy, and I am his child, and the Father loves me relentlessly. Amen? Amen. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Then the psalmist repeats, let us come. Repetition is always for emphasis. 
into his presence. In the upper room, John 14, 16, Jesus says to the disciples and to us by extension, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That helper is the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comma, and that helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. Does anybody know what the next word is? Forever. Forever. So when we sing in the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord as a follower of Jesus, if we have, if we have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, the Spirit of God is in us. He, he can't be any more present when you lift your voice in praise to him. In his presence. With thanksgiving, the reflection of the fullness of my heart. When I sing, do I lift my voice as an offering of thanksgiving for what he has done or is doing and, and what he ultimately will do for me and for us? You know, I've, I've had the privilege to do a lot of traveling in ministry. I was in first half of my ministry years, about 15 years or so, I was in missions ministry and so I traveled a lot, I was away a lot and I've probably been in church services in I don't know, 40 countries, 50 countries, a lot of places. And I've experienced just glorious times of listening to brothers and sisters saying, often when I couldn't understand what they were saying. And I've stood and listened to men and women saying, I've had tears run down my face. When I look at the way that they participate, whether it's in a freezing cold little village in Eastern Europe in the dead of winter, or might be in a favela in Brazil, or, or some other place, and I, I will hear these people raise the roof in song, and I look around and say, you know what? It, it, you're singing to the Savior because your circumstances are unimaginably difficult. They are worshiping in praise of the Savior. It's not metered by the plight of their circumstances. Finally, it says, with songs of praise. Songs of praise. Let me just take a couple minutes and address that because this is always an interesting issue. Uh, there's some great old songs of the faith. I love some of the historic songs of our faith, some of the old hymns. But uh, old doesn't necessarily make something better. Older often means that it's more familiar and and we feel more comfortable with that. And, and some of the old songs are magnificent. This week when I was working in my office, uh, this went through my head, I don't know, know why, but remember, remember the old song? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Remember that old song? And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That is just such beautiful imagery. But some of the theology in some of the old songs, wasn't that great? And we like the old songs often, I think, because they, we feel more connected to them because sociologists tell us that we're most connected to the style of music that is most present in our life around age 20. So if you were 20 years old in the late 60s, you probably listened to the Beatles, right? Uh, if you were 20 years of age when, you know, certain uh, new age, you know, in that 1980s, you, you know, or not new age, new wave. That's two different things, isn't it, Corey? Yeah, yeah, thank you. New wave music, right? I can remember all that and all Duran Duran and all the hair. And I used to have hair then. It's a long time ago. So we feel connected to that. 
But let me just mention three comments about songs and music and all of that, okay? First one is this. First, it is biblical to embrace and to lift our voices to the Lord in song. It's very biblical, right? It's very biblical. In fact, in Psalm 96.1 and in other places we ring, read, Oh, sing to the Lord a... So we know what the next word is? New song. A new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In fact, we read that Psalm 98.1. We read it again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Now, why does the psalmist say we should sing a new song? Well, first we have a new heart in Christ, and that brings all things new into our experience. But we also have a verse, uh, you know, that is telling us about these new experiences and, and, and blessings, marvelous things. Marvelous things we read there in Psalm 98.1. And that should dictate a fresh song of praise. And as much as I love the old songs, you know what, I just don't want to sing of the experience of dead guys. I want to sing about what God's doing today. And there's some new songs that theologically aren't good. I get that, they're not strong. Number two, our passionate worship is a product of our hearts. Our passionate worship is a product of our hearts. Engagement in worship, when we sing, is not a factor of the song, but is more about our relationship with the Savior. We read a lot about making a joyful noise there in Psalm 95. I make a joyful noise. When I sing, it's a joyful noise. You know why? You know why I sing? I know I'm a terrible singer. I have no musical ability at all. I, my parents spent about $10,000 on drum lessons over about four years. Once a week I went. I think it was like 30 bucks. Multiply that out, right? And after about 500 drum lessons, the drum teacher said to me, have you ever tried ceramics or painting or anything like that? Like, <laughs> but you know why I make a joyful noise and I sing? It's not because, you know, I, th I think this song's better than that one or whatever. I, I do it because I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And, and some days when I don't feel like singing, I'm like, yeah, that's not an issue of the song or the tune or the band or whatever. It's an issue of Steve's heart. It's an issue of my own heart. When my kids were small, <clears throat> we lived in the U.S. when they were smallest, but uh, we had several occasions, several evenings where we experienced, uh, I would call it almost a night of terror. Um, it's a fear-invoking experience when you go through this. And if I know that we were gonna have to go through this so many times, I might have not had children. And you're wondering what the experience is. The experience is taking your kids to Chuck E. Cheese. You ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Most of them have closed up, I think, in Canada, which that's God's common grace, if you're wondering. Uh, but we used to have to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, you don't know this, and you're gonna think I'm making this up. Do you know Chuck E. Cheese was supposed to be called uh, Rick's Rat Pizza? Isn't that funny? That's where you want to take your kids for a birthday party. Hey, for your birthday, you want to go to Rick's Rat Pizza? Oh, I guess so. Yeah, that sounds fun. That's what it's supposed to be called, Rick's Rat Pizza. Because that Chuck E. Cheese, he ain't no mouse. He's a rat. You know what a rat is, eh? It's a rodent. It's vermin. And we used to have to go to Chuck E. Cheese's. 
I'd rather have a root canal than go to Chuck E. Cheese's. Because I, I, I don't really like pizza sauce in my hair. I, I don't like kids around me belching pepperoni and Pepsi. But, but you don't take your kids to, or your grandkids to Chuck E. Cheese and stand around you know, saying to kids, you know this is actually supposed to be Rick's Rat Pizza. And that thing's a rat, not a mouse. It's not like Mickey Mouse. You don't do that, do you? Because the focus of your affection is on your kids. And so you enjoy the time and you make the most of it and you want them to have a glorious time and, and feel like you, you're focused on them and, you, and you, you, you bless them. You get the analogy, don't you? It's the same as when we come and worship. It's a product of our hearts. Product of our hearts. Uh, uh, when I was pastoring, we used to have a few people that would say to me, yeah, I don't come in for the worship time. I stand in the foyer. I, I don't like the music. And, and I would say in my most pastoral voice, are you kidding me? I had a missionary come to me one time, an elderly missionary lady, and she wanted to join our church, and she would retired from the mission field, and she came and she said, I'm gonna you know, withdraw my membership from the church I was in Toronto, and I, I really feel comfortable here, I really love it here. And I said, oh, what do you love about it? And she said, well, I love this and this. She said, I hate the music. And I go, oh. She goes, but it's not about me. She says, I love seeing college students and high school students worshiping. And she said, it's not about me. I just love that. Number three, I sing as a worshiper and a child of the Most High King. Your identity, our identity, when we come here to worship, especially at Christmas, is that we're passionate worshipers and we're child, children of the Most High King. You know, one of the beautiful things that I love about West Park, and, you know, and I travel around and do preaching assignments in di different churches, but one of the things that I so love about West Park is that I know for a fact, because you filled out a survey last winter, and, uh, and we asked, one of the questions we asked is, what's your church background? And you filled out different things. Let me read a few of them to you. Anglican, Brethren, Methodist, Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, Reformed, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Bible Church, Nazarene, Mennonite, Christian Missionary Alliance, Association Gospel, United Church, Salvation Army, and I think there's probably others. That's all of our background. But we've come together, and we've come together as a faith, a people of faith, and we're centered on a truth. The reality of highest importance to all of us is Jesus Christ is the King and the Savior of the world, amen? Amen. And everything else falls away. And that becomes sacrosanct and central. Let me just say this as a finish up. When people worship, some people lift their hands. And some of you are oaks of righteousness. And sometimes people wonder, oh, is that, if I do that, have I gone like Pentecostal? Some of you should be a little more Pentecostal. David said, I will praise you if I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. You can go through the Old Testament over and over and over again and read verse after verse after verse of people lifting their hands to the Lord. Fathers and grandfathers, 
What's the temperature of your worship? Does your wife set the temperature of the worship in your own life or your home? It's very interesting when people lift their hands in worship. You know, lifting your hands almost globally and universally, there's three things that are most common for people lifting their hands. One reason people lift their hands is they lift their hands in victory. Ever watch somebody run, you know, run the marathon and they, they break through and what do they do? They go, yeah, I may not have won, but I finished, I made it, or I, maybe I won, right? Or at the end of a football game or whatever, they raise their hands in victory. First Corinthians, Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. You ever raise your hands in victory over the devil? But people also raise their hands, not in victory, but it's almost the opposite end of the continuum. People also raise their hand when they are doing what? Surrendering, right? They say, I, uh, I'm done fighting, I, 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 I'm done, I'm done. I'm yours, Father. I, I'm surrendering. I, I, I've, I've surrendered to you. But people also lift their hands in need. They lift their hands up when they're in need. We all have grandkids that say, Papa, would you pick me up? Hold me. Baby crying out to their mom, pick me up. I need you. If you're hurting this morning or you feel hopeless and helpless and you need a touch from him, just reach out to God. You'll find that he's reaching out to you. Elizabeth, she worshiped. Mary worshiped. Old Joe, he worshiped. The shepherds worshiped, the wise men worshiped. One group that I didn't mention, I haven't mentioned them till now, but let me mention them who worshiped. You'll know the verse. Every time I read it, I can hear Charlie Brown Christmas in the back of my head. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. Now why is that so profoundly important? What is unique about that? Because this host of, of angels, this multitude of angels is crying out in worship to God. They're saying glory to the God in the highest. God is so amazing, so incomparable. And the amazing part of that is the angels are those who knew God best. And they worship. They worship. They worship. So West Park, let me encourage you this Christmas to say, count me in. Count me in. I, I want to be a white, hot worshiper of King Jesus. I, I want my worship to overflow. I'm not, I'm not going to be held back by awkwardness. I don't care what other people think. The Bible exhorts me to be a passionate worshiper. I want to be a passionate worshiper. Would you stand as I pray? Let's just bow our heads. <clears throat> Let's just join our voices together. Join with me. Oh, come let us 
adore him. Sing it out. Oh, come, let us adore Father God, we do adore you. We want to be known as white-hot worshipers because we know that in eternity future we will be worshiping you face to face. Let us not regret that we were not the kind of worshipers on this earth that you would desire us to be. May we be like Mary and Elizabeth and Zachariah and wise men and shepherds and the heavenly multitudes. And may our hearts be full with overflowing and praise to you. May our worship be white hot. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.